folks, we're going to get started. Um, I want to first welcome you um, and wish you a happy afternoon. I'm Larry Jacobs. I am director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Before we get going, I want to first encourage you to participate. We are eager to get your questions and we'll get to as many as possible. You can see at the bottom of the screen that Q&A button. That's your entry into um, the conversation this afternoon. And to the right, you'll see there's a live transcript uh, button if you uh, would like that uh, feature, live captioning, it's there for you. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, New Congress, New Politics. This is a phenomenal program with just the right people. Um, our guests today are some of the leading uh, thinkers and scholars of Congress. Uh, I want to first welcome um, my good friend Sarah Binder, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. She's also professor at George Washington University, where she specializes in the study of Congress and legislative politics, as well as being one of the most widely quoted um, experts in the country on those topics. She's also famous among political scientists for her many publications, including the book Stellmate, Cause and Consequence of Legislative Gridlock. It was published a little while ago, but it never loses relevance. Um, uh, Professor Binder is also a graduate of the political science department at the University of Minnesota and a graduate we are very proud of. I'd also like to uh, welcome my colleague in the Department of Political Science here, University of Minnesota, Professor Michael Minta, who is an expert on political representation of African-American, Latino, and women interests in the United States. He's written a terrific book called Oversight, Representing Black and Latino Interests in Congress. I recommend it highly. And then our moderator today um, is uh, Catherine Pearson, who is associate professor here in the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. Her expertise and research is on the US Congress and congressional elections. Um, her book, Party Discipline in the House of Representatives, could not be more timely, even though it was published a few years ago. I now turn things over to my colleague and good friend, Catherine Pearson. Thank you so much, Larry. It's a pleasure to moderate this panel and dive in as the 118th Congress begins. So thanks to Larry Jacobs and the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance for hosting us today. Um, before we dive into what has already been an interesting start to the 118th Congress, I want to sort of start by asking Sarah and Michael to talk a little bit about the implications of the 2022 midterms. I know November seems like a long time ago, but it took several days before we knew that the outcome was a narrow majority uh, for House Republicans taking it back from Democrats, and then it took until a special election to know that the Democrats in the Senate had actually expanded their majority by one uh, to make for 51 votes. So very narrow margins in both chambers and also Democrats doing uh, better than expected given the fact that it was a midterm election with a Democratic president in the White House. And we know that historically that is not good news uh, for, uh, for the party in power. So um, uh, Professor Binder, we'll start with you. Just talk a little bit about the elections and sort of what the results mean for what we're gonna, what we're gonna see in the next two years. Uh, sure. Well, thanks. And thanks very much, especially Minnesota, <laughs> for uh, inviting me. Um, so your uh, summary of the elections hit it right on right on the nose, right, that there were expectations going into election season that it would be a great year for Republicans, that in the Senate, there was thinking perhaps they would pick up control of the Senate. All they needed was a net of one seat uh, to change the 50-50 Senate. Um, that turned out not to be true. And we think it didn't work out that way because it was a great evening, as it were, for uh, incumbents of both parties. For the open seats and some of the Republican challengers, it seems that they were a little too out of step. And as political scientists like to say, out of step, out of office. And doesn't always apply to the House, uh, but in the Senate, where you have to run in certain of the, these sort of big uh purple states that swing back and forth, you can't be that far out of step. Uh, and that um, really uh, killed off Republican chances of picking up control. Uh, 
Over on the House, as we all know, and you said, uh, there was expectations of a quote unquote red wave. It did not materialize. Um, I think we're still figuring out precisely what led to that outcome, but it does seem that Democrats uh, certainly did better in some of those swingy places and yet uh, lost seats uh, where they traditionally might have won, especially uh, New York uh, State and some of those California races. Um, it brings us, as you said, split party control, House and Senate, different parties and uh, different, obviously, party to the uh, in, in the White House. So what's that mean? Historically, split party control, we think of it as divided government, but like a particularly tough environment for divided government. It's hard to get the House and Senate on the same page. It can be done, but it's even harder than a usual period of divided government. Um, and we'll get to, I'm sure, uh, the particular measures that are going to be causing problems uh, for the House, the Senate, uh, and probably for all of us <laughs> as well. Great. Thank you. Professor Minta, um, anything to add about the 2022 election? Certainly, uh, it brought in the most diverse House of Representatives in history. Oh, well, that's my cue. Um, uh, first of all, I think, uh, uh, Catherine, thanks for, for hosting this and, and Larry for that great um, introduction. Uh, wow. I mean, it's, yes, it's one of the most diverse Congresses ever, right? Um, and, and that's an interesting tidbit, right? So it's one of the most diverse Congress racially and ethnically and gender wise, but it's probably one of the most polarized, right? Um, and so that that trend between polarization and the increase of racial, ethnic and gender diversity, that's kind of befuddling. And um, uh, so right now, most racial and ethnic minorities are in the Democratic Party and they're in the minority party in the House. Now, obviously, in the Senate, um, there's that slit, very slim majority there. Um, um, more diverse, but not as diverse as, as the House. Um, but I wanted to go back uh, to talk a little bit about the elections and the midterms and, and, and what we think about it. I mean, so that red wave didn't necessarily appear because, like Sarah said, some of it is just candidate selection. Um, some of it's redistricting effects, not as much, but a lot of it has to do with the former president, Donald Trump. And, and um, I mean, look, first of all, the Democrats in that committee on the January 6th committee was a big infomercial for almost what, six or seven months, right? Of showing how uh, they're, they're against uh, democratic uh, change and just peaceful transition of power. Uh, all the ailings of Donald Trump, and then they, and then Republicans nominated many people who kind of aligned themselves with Donald Trump. So in a lot of ways, 2022 was almost like a continuation of 2020. Um, and voters, uh, you know, Donald Trump has a coalition, but it's not enough in some of these these swing. Where it's like 25, the 35 districts in the House that determines the majority. Um, I mean, they could have done a lot better, but, you know, just really going far to the right made it made it very difficult. So instead of Republicans taking control of the House and the Senate, they take control of the House. Um, they lose this. They don't get they don't increase their majority at all. I mean, they don't gain anything in the Senate. So I really think that um, I mean, Republicans, especially moderate and established Republicans are really they know that this isn't necessarily the best strategy. Um, but anyway, I know we're going to talk about what happened last week, but uh, yeah, it's, it has a lot of implications on um, uh, future consequences for the Republican Party. Great, thank you. And so let's dive in to what happened last week. Um, we'll spend uh, a lot of time, I think, now talking about House Republican leadership and specifically the many, many votes for speaker. Um, political scientists and the press, you know, really focus when talking about Congress about the polarization between the two parties. And uh, it is uh, very pronounced at record high levels, but significantly, there are obviously some important factional politics within the Republican Party right now. Um, and so, uh, Sarah, if you could start us off by just sort of giving us some historical context, this is something you've written on, and then bring us up to date with the, the House Speaker votes last week. Uh, sure. So as you said, we, we think it reasonably so that we're in this period of polarization. And granted, people can disagree about what that polarization, what the term capture is. 
but it certainly captures some intense partisanship, right? The idea that my team's for it, so your team is against it, regardless of whether those are ideological differences, right? Different views about the role of government, say. We definitely have intense partisanship. And yet, as you said, it, that doesn't uh, belie the fact that there are divisions. There are what we call factions within both the majority and the minority uh, party. So, but these factions in the House on the Republican side um, have been there. They've been changing shape a little bit over the last decade or so. Um, but today we call them we call them the Freedom Caucus. Although keep in mind there are divisions even within the Freedom Caucus. But we think that the Freedom Caucus stems and comes out of per, probably that Tea Party wave that emerges in the wake of the financial crisis. And of course, we do have factions historically in both parties. I think what is somewhat unique and worth us thinking about is that this Freedom Caucus, Tea Origins, Tea Party, however we describe it, that Freedom Caucus, or whether we call it sort of intense Trump uh, MAGA faction, it's on the on the on what we call the far right of of the Republican Party and thus and thus of Congress. I think in the past when we've seen these battles over speakers and over the rules of the game, and we'll come to what those battles were like this time. Those factions tend to be in the middle middle of the of the Congress, so that they can get some support for the minority party. In a period of polarization or intense partisanship, Democrats aren't very happy today to reach out and to lend any support uh, to the Freedom Caucus and what they're up to. They may come to have common cause about opening up and quote unquote democratizing right access to the floor and loosening the grip of party leaders over the agenda. But for now, this is a story about the Republicans and, and their factions, um, which is going to sort of play out over the next two years uh, in terms of their relationship with the Speaker, and then in terms of the ability of House Republicans to pass what we call must-pass measures now that Speaker McCarthy has made a lot of concessions without any really guarantees of cooperation from the Freedom Caucus um, faction. So I think going forward, I would keep my eyes here on divisions uh, within the Freedom Caucus. You know that Jim Jordan, representative from Ohio, was the leader of the Freedom Caucus for some time, and now he's the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he was the staunchest floor defender of McCarthy. So there are a lot of divisions there, and we don't have good terminology to capture <laughs> capture them. Um, so, but we want to keep our eyes on the behavior of of the Freedom Caucus, and finally, just not just because they are ideologically distinct from the rest of the party, because they might not be. But what they are is pretty anti-establishment. They don't like current leaders. They don't like McCarthy. They don't like McConnell. Um, so that doesn't lend themselves to being team players. And I think that's going to be interesting going forward. Thank you. Uh were you uh, a quick follow-up and then I'll turn it over to Michael uh sort of midday on Friday were you thinking that McCarthy would ultimately be speaker or were you thinking this is not going to happen for him well um my husband Forrest also a Minnesota <laughs> PhD had his book club over early in the week and they all wanted a performance from <laughs> Professor Binder, what's going to happen? And and you, we all know we don't do predictions. I don't do predictions, and I don't do them very well. The last one I made was on November eighth, twenty sixteen, when I also had a house full of people who refused to come back again, <laughs> back again because I was wrong about the presidential election. Um, I said then it, either either he finished that was Tuesday night, either he finds a way to wrap it up on Wednesday, or they're going to be searching for a replacement. Um, I was dead wrong <laughs> on both. Um, Friday, you know, they, it was hard, it was still hard to tell at that point until the cast that had that 14th, you know, second to last um, ballot when McCarthy finally peeled off almost everybody he needed. I guess if we were really had a really great crystal ball, we would might think, wow, McCarthy really gave away the store. He gave away almost everything as, a, as best we can tell maybe not a subcommittee gavel for one or two of the Freedom Caucus members he held back on. Um, he gave a, McCarthy promised a lot. In fact, he promised things he himself can't personally deliver, <laughs> um, like because there's a co committee that gives out committee assignments, even though he promised good committee assignments, we think. So um, I, I guess that the fact that uh, McCarthy very 
or we've seen what he's given out, we might have imagined that uh, Freedom Caucus ticked off almost everything <laughs> on their list. And to keep in mind that it wasn't clear that there was someone else who could get 218 um, votes. And it's not clear who the Freedom Caucus would have supported. Um, we talked a lot about number two, Steve Scalise from Louisiana. I think the reporting was the swing district folks uh, weren't really keen on him. Um, I think the, the the tagline that often goes with him is David Duke, sort of you know, Southern segregationist, uh, David Duke without the baggage. Um, I don't really know what the baggage meant, but so I don't I don't think he was actually going to be a solution. And the and the Freedom Caucus didn't seem wild about anybody in leadership given their anti-establishment views. So um, I was wrong on Friday night. Um, but I was, uh, I did enjoy the Black by Super Bowl. It's really, you know, I didn't know the Super Bowl ran to two in the morning. But um, so, um, yeah, it was great. You know, you don't get a lot of excitement. You don't get a lot of uncertainty in the house, but this delivered in droves. So there you go. Kathy, All right. Kathy, Thank you. And Michael, what did you think? What was your oh, prediction? my gosh. Oh, it was just <laughs> wonderful. I mean, maybe not good for. He's, you know, smooth running of Congress and getting government business done. But as far as reality TV, oh, my God. I mean, C-SPAN, what were the ratings? I mean, gosh, like their viewership up like 130-something percent. I mean, and I was one of those people watching C-SPAN, too. It was, oh, it was just wonderful TV to watch. And then even like, uh, was it was it Friday night where the representative, like, had to be restrained, was it Mike Rogers had to be restrained from Matt Gates? I mean, it was, I couldn't believe it, right? But then we've been studying Congress for so long, we know that stuff like this isn't really unusual, right? We, it's, there's a history. I mean, there are many years where Congress members like would bring guns to the chamber and, uh, or even the caning. I mean, so, so this isn't, as unusual as people in modern day, contemporary day, it's it's unusual, but in the past, I mean, it's been even worse. So what was very interesting though, I like, like Sarah said, I was, after a while, I was starting to think, well, McCarthy maybe needs to just pull out. He's not gonna get it, but then we couldn't think of, but everyone kept saying, who's gonna be the alternative? And there really wasn't seemingly a clear alternative. And then also it was like the Freedom Caucus is like, well, what do you guys want? McCarthy's almost given you everything that you wanted. Um, the thing that was interesting to me, I and I said this maybe a few days ago, I was like, well, it's about taking power away from the speaker and empowering the rank and file members. But then I, I go back and I remember that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was, was really mad who's really, she's in the Freedom Caucus and she was like, well, these members are going back and trying to cut deals. And so I'm wondering what members in the Freedom Caucus, what type of deals were cut in terms of committee chairmanships, subcommittee chairmanships? Because we know about all this other things like McCarthy had already given on like even the motion to vacate. I mean, he'd already given that. He'd already, this, this committee to investigate government, it, weaponizing government to use. Uh, we already know that that's already, so we're just like, well, what else is going on? And then people were like, and even the Freedom Caucus members, we was like, well, maybe it's something personal against McCarthy. And I'm sure there was something, but many of those members said it's not personal. So I, I, I'm just wondering, you know, Jim Jordan was supporting McCarthy, as Sarah says, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So what was it? I, I think we'll find out eventually, but I, I, I just don't know. Thank you. Well, certainly uh, these same factional dynamics in the Republican Party weakened former Speaker Boehner to the point that he resigned and made the speakership very difficult for Paul Ryan, um, who also tried to democratize the House and appease, appease some of the Freedom Caucus, former Tea Party members, but it was challenging. Um, but despite the, the two speakers in between, Speaker Pelosi's first and second stint as Speaker, she came back in 2019 stronger than ever as Speaker. And she had her own factional politics to deal with. In fact, the margins for Pelosi are exactly the same as the current margins for McCarthy, but she, she held her party together voting actually um, at record high unity. But of course, Pelosi is no longer Speaker. Um, so going forward, both in the minority and uh, whenever Democrats might regain the majority, how do you think this will affect Democrats? Um, Michael, why don't we start with you and then we'll turn to Sarah. 
Yeah, I um, I mean, obviously each major, each majority they get a, each party they'll decide their own rules. So just because Republicans are doing it now, I mean, you wonder if many of the squad members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, or Ilhan Omar, will they, are they taking notes and said, hey, maybe we should have fought a little bit more um, for what we wanted. Um, uh, and, and, and I thought it was very interesting with McCarthy, he told uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who's the uh, minority leader, and you know, Hakeem Jeffries went through and said, you know, I had unanimous support of my caucus. And then McCarthy said, well, Hakeem, I actually had unanimous support in my caucus too when I was in the minority. So he kind of reminded like, when your time comes, you may actually have to go through this. So, you know, I'm not certain if Jeffrey has that type of sway that Nancy Pelosi had. I mean, she was definitely able to go through and hold down kind of the far left of the party. And maybe because at one time, you know, Pelosi was to the left. And she was able to cut deals with each member and she brought up the issues that they wanted um, and they got committee assignments that they wanted. So I don't know if it remains to be seen if Jeffries will have the type of sway and pull that uh, Nancy Pelosi has. And it's very possible that we could, maybe not 15 rounds, but it could be a more contentious in terms of, of, of the squad saying we want more, so. Great, thank you. Uh, Sarah, what do you think of this new Democratic leadership? Uh, Jeffries, Clark, Aguilar? Well, I, I confess to being a fan of the Democratic uh, acrostic uh, alphabet, alphabet at one, one, one third in the morning when Jeffries got up the gavel and uh, went through the alphabet with the things the Democrats stand for. I thought that was uh, pretty gutsy to do that at one, one thirty in the morning when Republicans really wanna just um, coronate <laughs> Speaker McCarthy. Um, I think uh, sort of Michael put his fingers on it. Um, this it's different being in the minority than it is in the majority. Um, will there is some advantage to being in the minority because in some many ways it's easier to be unified because your job in the modern house is to oppose the majority party. Um, so it may be that. Uh, McCarthy's prediction is correct, right? Um, when you're married, don't worry, you're going to do, you'll do just, you'll do just fine. So I, I guess some of the questions here is in part, what happens to Democrats uh, if these rules and sort of process changes that we'll, I guess we'll talk about, um, whether they stick and whether they work to the advantage of groups like the Progressive uh, Caucus in the House or the Squad um, in the House. I think it's always important to keep in mind, and, and as as political scientists, we're I think less good about making arguments about the distinctiveness of different qualities of the parties, as opposed to treating them as the majority party and the the minority party. Um, but there's no denying that there's a difference between sort of the governing instincts of Democrats and at least looking at the Freedom Caucus, their policy objectives. Which I think many people would say in the in the fiscal realm are not politically realistic. That they're the outliers compared to even what other conservatives uh, in the House and Senate are willing to countenance. And I think we'll come to see that if they have. I think many Republicans don't want to vote for the types of cuts that would be required under the promise that McCarthy gave uh, for a balanced budget um, to to the Freedom Caucus. So for Democrats going forward in the next Congress or the next time they wield power, I, I don't know that the that the factions on the Democratic side will necessarily be quite at odds with their leaders if they're all in some ways rowing the boat in the same <laughs> direction, which I don't I don't get that sense from Republicans. I mean, there are some issues, of course, that that unify them, um, cultural issues to a degree, uh, immigration to a degree. Um, uh, deregulation to a degree, but those aren't the issues we've been talking about <laughs> during the speakership race. And so um, I I'd just be very curious to see uh, where those factions arise on both sides uh, today and in a future Congress um, and whether Democrats will be as debilitated, at least in the short run, it uh, looks like on the Republican side. Um, but I think it's a little, it's a rocky road. Um, it's a little unclear 
how exactly things play out on both sides of the aisle. And Sarah, could I, uh, Catherine, can I add, um, the one thing that um, with, with Jeffries, right, and Aguilar, some of the squad members, at least in the papers, were somewhat concerned that he's too establishment. And maybe that's why he is a speaker, right? I think he's establishment. So they were concerned, but they're in the minority. So I don't think they made a big deal of it. Now, again, like I said, it, it'll be it'll be very interesting, uh, whether it's two years, four years, because it seems that this competitiveness in the house is, is going to continue. Um, uh, will it? Will he experience some type of pushback from the squad members with, that you know? Because he doesn't have the stature of Nancy Pelosi, um, where Nancy Pelosi is directly responsible for getting many of those members elected to the House. Um, it'll, it'll, it remains to be seen what happens in these two years. What type of political capital can Jeffries? What can he build up in order to keep this type of revolt when the Democrats are in the majority again? So, mm -hmm. yeah. I, mean, there, I was going to say, there's like this trade-off that members have to make, right, between empowering leaders to act on their behalf and maybe giving away too much power when it seems you might not be acting on their behalf. Um, Pelosi won that trade-off, right? She was able to dole out little bits uh, of individually quietly. Um, goodies to people who said they're going to oppose her. Um, the trade-off in the, the in the Republican side this past week, uh, it was messy, and it's not quite clear how much McCarthy's left with. I think speakership is left with a lot of powers, um, but it may be hard to wield them uh, given um, these trade-offs, these concessions that he made. Well, let's talk about the implications of uh, the factional politics and the trade-offs that uh, McCarthy made on two of the most important issues facing this Congress, the must-pass legislation, increasing the debt ceiling and passing the annual appropriations bills. And those were obviously a subject of concern to Republicans as they elected a speaker um, and will be going forward. So I guess starting with the debt ceiling, um, Sarah, how do you think that will play out? <laughs> predictions? I can't. <laughs> um, so I think, well, the interesting part, we know now at the get-go that the two are going to be related, right? The notion of spending cuts, that, uh, that, that Freedom Caucus and maybe others, probably others, uh, want, um, but also uh, the question of the debt ceiling, the overall level of uh, debt that can be um, uh, issued by, by Treasury. So it seems going in that the the likely position of the Republicans will be something similar to what we saw back in 2011 when the country came as close as it's come in a long time to defaulting on um, its debt, which, as you said, we call that's why I call it must pass. Uh, government doesn't want to default, and none of us really uh, want to live in a world where U.S. government uh, debt isn't sacrosanct. But we think that the that the the storyline will look something like it looked a decade ago, which is rather than a quote unquote clean increase in the debt ceiling, Republicans, especially in the House, will demand some form of cuts. Uh, and in fact, potentially very serious cuts like we saw negotiated out uh, back, in, back in 2011. Um, there was a story, I think, Wall Street Journal yesterday that um, had a couple of quotes from some of the what we think of as more of the swing voters, uh, swing members in the Republican conference of uh, Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, uh, one or two others. And it was it was a slight comment, but they seemed on board, like recognizing, yeah, of course we should not just do a clean, like we should demand something in terms of paring back certain types of spending. And so if that's what the swing voters, if that's right, and McCarthy needs everybody. Minus, you know, he can just lose four. If that's what the, what the, the swingier Republicans are saying at the get-go, it's going to be messy, right? As we know, Senate Democrats don't want to do that, and I and Biden, the White House, doesn't want to do uh, pay something for raising the debt ceiling. But Democrats don't get a say by themselves. <laughs> Senate Republicans will matter, so um, it's just messy. Uh, and I think we've sort of gotten used to, and financial markets have gotten used to the fact 
that Congress walks up pretty closely to that debt ceiling and quote unquote, we know they won't step over the line. Um, but that faith may be a little misplaced if we've already, right, we're already looking down, looking down the aisle there. At the end of the day, whatever the solution is, both parties need to save face, right? And how that happens, um, I think that's what uh, we want to keep our eyes on. So I guess one follow-up question is, is there a scenario in which McCarthy has a dozen of his members and most all of the Democrats to pass the same version of a debt ceiling increase with maybe some spending cuts that the Senate Democrats, uh, you know, that the Senate has passed, or would that endanger McCarthy's speakership? I mean, is that where these two things, is this where the rubber really hits the road? Yeah, but I think you put your finger on it, right? If we look back a decade ago when Boehner got in problems and Boehner would say, look, the Freedom Caucus, they wanted to go that way. And only a Boehner would say, a leader without followers is a man taking a walk in the park. So they wanted to go that way and I followed them. And that got them stuck in what we called the Box Canyon. But eventually they have to come out, right? <laughs> because the debt ceiling does eventually have to be raised. Um, but I think that's that's the key question. Fine, House can do what the Freedom Caucus wants, perhaps tough cuts in exchange for a debt ceiling increase. Um, but if those cuts are too too dire, and if the White House has said we won't make any cuts, then what's what's McCarthy right? What's McCarthy really? Um, what's he going to do? And just just to also keep in the back of our minds here, if you look at all the votes on raising the debt ceiling in a divided peer, peers divided government, both parties tend to pony up votes. Right? compared to unified party control, where the burden uh, and expectations are on, on, the, on the majority party and the minority party is left off the hook, or at least the president's party does the lion's share. But divided government, history says they both participate, so it'll be uh, curious how, how things pan out. Thank you. Uh, Michael, what else will House Republicans be up to, sort of aside from the, the must-pass legislation? What do you... Uh, what do you think their agenda will look like for the next two years? Besides investigating Hunter Biden and, uh, and, and, and the FBI and the January 6th committee. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's just going to be an era of, of, of divided government of basically the minority party really trying to investigate the, um, the, the party of the presidency. So, I mean, I, I imagine that they will uh, look at all of the issues, um, especially with the January 6th committee, many Republicans were, were left off. Um, and so they're concerned that it was a, a partisan and a biased election. So I think you'll see a lot of time spent on trying to retell that narrative or provide a different side of that narrative. Um, I think you will see uh, any type of scandal associated with the president. This is all in preparation for, for 2024. I mean, to really kind of set the stage uh, to show that there is a, a difference between the parties. Um, I, I, I'm, in terms of policy, in terms of cutting, the, I mean, I think there'll be a push, as Sarah said, to try to cut things. But if, if it's really an issue about the deficit, I mean, we know the, the mandatory, the entitlements, you know, Medicare, Social Security, they're not going to touch that. So now we're talking about more discretion. They're not, Democrats are, they're not gonna to touch defense. So now we're gonna start talking about even more discretionary programs like, uh, you know, welfare or, or, or aid to, to schools and states. So I, I think that we're gonna see those type of debates um, in addition to the oversight. So I, I I, I don't know what they're clear because they can't pass it. So you just imagine, and, and I imagine there'll be another attempt to try to repeal Obamacare um, in the House. Uh, so yeah, it's who who knows. Thank you. A lot of messaging bills that that will go nowhere. Um, but turning to the Senate, uh, obviously we'll see some confirmations. Um, but Sarah, what are we what are we expecting out of the Senate? We've barely talked about the Senate at all today. It's, I was pretty amazed that the Senate came in uh, last week. Um, Speaker, um, Minority Leader McConnell became the longest serving Senate leader, majority or minority-ish, ever. 
and nobody paid him any attention because we were all staring at the C-SPAN cameras um, in, in the house. And then they slipped out of town. Um, but, but they'll be back. Uh, and I think what, as we always want to do, we want to keep our eyes on how does the majority leader, Democrat um, Schumer, how does he manage to pursue the Biden agenda in a world where the House won't cooperate and in a world where he needs support from nine, at least nine Republicans? I think, as you said, they will refocus their attention and double down on confirmations, uh, both of executive branch uh, employees who uh, still aren't in place, uh, despite the fact that um, Biden appointed, uh, nominated many of them over a year, if not two um, ago, and to focus on the courts, um, recognizing that if Biden doesn't get, doesn't run or doesn't, Democrats don't keep the White House, um, they've lost the opportunity to try to reshape the courts um, and to try to counterbalance uh, the changes in a more conservative direction uh, that Trump was able to make with his with his appointments. So I think that's the focus. Um, but of course, when spending bills and the debt ceiling come up, that will consume um, our, our attention and, and the Democrats, obviously, in the Senate as well. I... This is a question really for either of you. Uh, what do you think the implications are for support for the war in Ukraine of new divided government? Um, I, gosh, I've, I've, I've read different things. I mean, obviously, usually both parties, when you're support, there's usually general support, but I've, I've heard some rumblings that we might need to pull back on some of our funding from um, Republicans uh, of the Ukraine. So I, I'm not in clear, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen um, with that or if that's going to be a top uh, agenda item. Um, could I, Sarah could say next, but I wanted to add one quick thing to what, what Sarah was saying. Um, you know, one thing that I'm watching in the Senate is Kirsten Sinema. Um, her switch from the Democratic Party to being an independent and what type of implications that may have in terms of the negotiations, whether it's the debt ceiling or spending cuts. I mean, um, is she going, I mean, we already know that she and uh, Senator Manchin have always been kind of highlighted as these, these power brokers, but I wonder how, is she willing to form coalitions with say Republicans in order to get things done or even maybe hold up some of these, these uh, um, nominations? I mean, it'll be very difficult for her to do that, but I'm just wondering how much will she be in coalition with with the, um, because technically she's not a Democrat anymore, even though she still caucuses with them. So looking for that. Sorry, back to the Ukraine, sorry. <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, I guess, well, first to keep in mind that the Biden administration, I, I, I think it's fair to say they anticipated difficulties in this current calendar year um, with a Republican majority and they, uh, the last of uh, that omnibus spending bill in December really did um, pack in, I don't have the, the number at the top of my head, 30 billion maybe, uh, of more money, um, both military and uh, uh, domestic-ish side uh, for, for Ukraine. And I think the intention was to hold over um, the, the funding for that initiatives um, so that the Congress doesn't have to immediately address that just the issue of funding for Ukraine. Um, my guess is certainly coming out of the House, they will, Republicans will try to put uh, a condition on the money, um, even if it's watered down to be something like reports, uh, benchmarks, um, something along the lines perhaps of what we saw back a, you know, a decade, 15 years ago with the funding for uh, the war in Iraq when Democrats regained control of the Congress and it was uh, Republican Bush. Um, trying to put some sort of greater transparency on how the monies are being spent. Whether that flies on the Senate side, where there really is quite robust bipartisan support, 
um, that's not clear. But it does promise to be on the on the Republican side in the House, sort of one of these issues that seems to uh, play well for Republicans back to their base. Um, the sort of quote unquote American first. Why are we spending money abroad? We have needs here. Um, so I think we it may be a little while be before we see fireworks over that. And of course, everything is you know conditional on the promises that McCarthy made that they were going to somehow magically do each of the dozen spending bills one by one. And I think one of the promises or conditions in the list I saw was that the Senate would adopt them, which I thought was one of uh, McCarthy's bolder, <laughs> bolder promises. So right, telling the Senate what to do. It, yeah. So in, in one of the ways the Ukraine money was passing in the past Congress is that most of the time it was packaged in those bigger spending bills. And so Republicans, if they wanted to, could vote against it. Democrats didn't need their votes. Um, but what happens now when you streamline these, in theory, the House is going to streamline their bills to do one at a time where votes on Ukraine will be quite visible? You know, no one really thinks that the Republicans can really commit to, you know, these siloed bills one by one because of the difficulty of passing them. Um, and in the Senate, the difficulty of passing any appropriations bills. So uh, it's a little messy, but there's probably more a uh, glide room here for the administration, given how much they bulked up on Ukraine spending from the last Congress. Sorry about that. Zoom just closed and kicked me off. So I missed whatever was said for the last minute. Um, we just finished up on Ukraine. We solved all the problems. Okay. That, wow. All right. Not to make light, uh, but. I'm going to now turn to questions from the audience, which because my Zoom quit, um, have now all disappeared. But uh, there was one question um, that asked, about expanding the size of the House of Representatives. Um, what do you think about expanding it so that uh, there are more voices, better representation? Obviously this would mean that uh, some states would send more representatives. Minnesota might not have to worry about losing one of its eight seats uh, every 10 years. That's to either of you. Let me just start, yeah. Um... Yeah, that kind of goes back. I'm just thinking about these old Federalist, Anti-Federalist debates about well, you should have more members in Congress. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if there's been much empirical research, really, just even speculating or doing simulations to say if the results would actually change and would would different perspectives and voices be heard? Um, would would certain certain jurisdictions or districts get more money or attention. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's unclear if that, and, and, and you're speaking to a representation person who writes about political representation. So I'm always like, yeah, more voices, more perspectives, but in this highly polarized and where partisanship is just, you know, all, the leadership is concerned about keeping that majority it, it's unclear if expanding um, the number of members in the House is really going to change the way the parties operate each, uh, each excuse me, the House of Representatives. It, it's just more people that they would have to deal with. And um, yeah, so it, it's unclear if you would have a different result or either more, more representations, so. Yeah. I I, I'm sort of in the same boat as Michael, which I don't know that I've seen too many concrete studies of implications, um, but the arguments in favor and opposed, I guess, are clear, right? The, I guess the argument in favor is that districts with 900,000 people um, aren't fair to voters uh, because of the lack of contact um, with members. Um, and the access to members is just uh, limited compared to if you paired back, if you expanded the house um, and paired back the size, just as a population matter, paired back the size of the districts. Um, and doing that might like get better alignment between cities and counties and how they're represented and then the overlaying 
um, house district, the lines of the house district. And, and maybe that would create some sort of continuities of representation that might be um, helpful. And of course, it, it may redound to the benefit of the minority party if there were chances to, to run um, as it were. Uh, can the house handle uh, so many cooks in the kitchen? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, so I think that is, uh, I think to me, that's the sort of key question, how the house would function. And is it possible that the house would have to centralize even more if there's so many more members, right? Does that type of delegation make run amok, um, making it harder? And if we know from today's watching the house is that there is a movement, there is some pressure to open up access to the floor and so forth. Um, open rules where any member, let's, I don't know what the size of the new house would be, but that would be a lot, they already can't handle all the little open amendments. So um, I, I could see why there's treading carefully here. Um, so, and I mean, there are other ways to deal with this, change the formula for how they allocate the seats so that, um, you know, maybe it's a little less of a bias against large states. Um, but it seems like something wouldn't just requires a law, um, but I think there may be too many unknown consequences for lawmakers to go down that path just yet. Great, thank you. Um, quickly, a question from the audience uh, that was sort of circulating um, in the conversation more generally last week. In the battle over the speakership, what would have prevented a handful of moderate Republicans from nominating one of their own, in other words, another moderate Republican, and then inviting the Democrats to vote for him or her? Um, it's everybody's favorite solution. Um, someone in my house was pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, and I kept saying, it's not going to happen. So the one prediction that ever came true. Um, so I think the problem here goes back to the first thing we talked about. This is an, no matter how fractious the Republicans are, they're still sort of closer to each other than they are to the Democrats. Um, and crossing that partisan barrier, that's really hard. I don't think Democrats want to lend any votes for a Republican speaker. It just was never going to happen. They don't want to give up. These are teams. They're players. They wear the same jersey. Um, I just can't see the core procedural vote, Democrats giving it to a Republican. And in past speakership battles, go back 100 years, uh, when it was the Republicans uh, with the conflict in the factions and Democrats, they just sat back and they weren't even as polarized back then. They just sat back. They weren't going to get involved um, in the other party's leadership contest. Along those lines, if I could follow up, if just one Republican, you know, wants to vacate the speakership and so calls a vote, can we expect every single Democrat to vote to vacate the speakership? Michael, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't I, I can't see Democrats getting in, involved in, in that because I mean, there's a lot at stake, right? So even though there was, it was great TV, you know, reality TV for us, but, you know, to call a vote, say in the middle of session to vacate the speakership just messes up a lot of business that, that the, uh, the chamber has to perform. So I, I, I don't think most Democrats would, would do that. And I, and I actually don't think most Republicans would, would be on board. <laughs> either but it would it would probably be good for like msnbc and fox news and all the other networks to to have that happen question uh about both parties leaders and their relationship to minnesota so one questioner uh wonders why there's not a single midwestern democrat in the democratic party leadership um sort of suggesting that democrats aren't being very responsive to a large swath of the country another questioner wants to know now that tom emmer is a uh, majority whip in the house will minnesota see more attention um whether it's earmarks or policies or, or otherwise I'll just tackle the first part and then defer to the Minnesotan experts and Minnesotans. <laughs> the second part, uh, I don't know that that Democrats per se have learned their 
lesson, I'm thinking of like a, a Tom Foley from Washington State who loses his election back in the 1990s. Um, it makes sense that, in, or makes sense in one way for parties to choose leaders from places that are solidly within the, the fold of that, uh, of their party. So Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco and Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn. So it, it certainly provides them some electoral insulation so they don't, you know, one always has to worry about their reelection. Exhibit A, Eric Cantor, the Republican leader who lost his Virginia seat. He wasn't even in his district on election day back a dozen, uh, dozen years ago. Um, but it does soften the, uh, the demands of attention to your district. Um, that is, you can fly around raising money and campaigning on behalf of your members um, in a way that you probably couldn't if you were um, Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan, or even if you were Abigail Spanberger from Virginia, right? These contested, tough, tough races for Democrats to hold on to. Um, it's not really a tenable model for them to be your leader. Yeah. Thank you. Michael, do you want to talk about uh, Majority Whip Emmer? Emmer, uh, wow. Um, I mean, it it should, right? Definitely draws more attention to to the state um, with, with Representative Emmer being in such a high profile position. Now, now the question is, does it translate into to resources um, to the state? Um, I mean, that remains to be seen, right? In terms of will will Minnesota get more attention in terms of uh, funding and appropriations and attention to agriculture? Um, yeah, it, it, it remains to be seen. I, I think that it it, it matters, um, and not to mention that, um, and I and I think it's not lost on us too that Minnesota is a a purplish state. I mean, there. I mean, and even though. I mean, it, we know that the most of what happens in the state, I mean, most of the population are in these urban areas and then the battles are being fought on the burbs. And so I would imagine that uh, Representative Emmer will do all that he can to uh, use his position um, to raise money um, for various candidates um, and to possibly make, um, you know, make those, some of those suburban districts more friendly toward Republicans next time. So when there is a presidential election, I mean, if you can get those suburbs to change some, I mean, Minnesota could be a red state. I know you're skeptical, you're looking at skeptical, but it's, it's, it, 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 it might happen. I, I don't know. There are certainly some narrow divides. Minnesota has yes. a 4-4 congressional district, of course. I think in terms of attention, Minnesota would have certainly benefited had the parties moved it up in the nominating process as the Minnesota DFL was trying for, but that's sort of a, a separate issue. Um, thinking ahead to a few different things, we're going to do sort of a lightning round. Um, what do people expect to happen will go both this Congress and longer term regarding the Senate filibuster? Uh, adding more members to the Supreme Court. And then finally, uh, an astute questioner notes that it's been a very long time since uh, the House has successfully passed 12 appropriations bills separately and on time uh, and had them signed into law. And so is this a real ex realistic expectation for this year? So Supreme Court, Senate filibuster, um, annual appropriations process. We only have a couple more minutes left. So Sarah, start with any one of those and then we'll pass it to Michael. Okay, um, I'll take filibuster for 200. Uh, it's off the table, we're abolishing the legislative filibuster in this Congress, because where would those bills go? They won't pass the House. And so that takes it off the table. I, I tend to think that the Senate, if you look at the ways in which and time when they change its rules and practices, I think they're on a long, long, slow, slow, it's the Senate slow Senate march to majority rule, right? They have been paring back the excesses of the filibuster, nominations, variations on different little parts of the cloture rule, uh, the budget law. So it may take a while to get there. And I don't know the issue that provokes it, but I would think one party or the other finally musters 51 to curtail um, the legislative filibuster. Until that's done, 
I don't I don't think either party in the current formulation could ever expand the court because the other party will will oppose. And then briefly on the on the spending bills, I think the last time they did the 12 bills individually through each chamber and signed into law separately was 1995 or 1997. There was a balanced budget that year. There was more money to go around. It seemed to have smoothed the edges. Um, I don't think it's realistic. And not just because it hasn't been done in a while, but it hasn't been done in a while uh, because it's hard to get people to vote for very isolated uh, smaller bills. You have to package them up so that everybody gets a little bit of, of what they want and you give in a little bit to the other person and then you let the people who aren't gonna vote for anything vote against it. Um, that's modern day legislating, right? That's how leaders cope with all sorts of uncertainty and polarization and divisions. They package it all together. So I assume in some form, eventually we'll see that this year. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I mean, what Sarah is saying, I mean, you're, we've, we've seen the rise in omnibus bills over time, and, and I don't think that's going to uh, decrease anytime soon, particularly as in, in a polarized uh, Congress. Uh, in, in, in terms of the uh, filibuster, I mean, I, I again, I don't, necessarily see for major legislation that's really about the only thing that's left I, I i don't see that changing anytime soon there's always this push to do it but under divided government's not going to happen and then as sarah said with the court packing i mean it's i mean even biden has again said that he's not supportive of that so i i don't see that necessarily uh, going anywhere um you know the one thing that i i do see going possibly somewhere is like border um enforcement. I mean, apparently Biden has been to the border recently. Kamala Harris has been there. Um, I think there might be some more movement on that. I mean, I know in, in the last Congress there, there was some movement, but I think there'll be, there might be a potential if you're going to see this divided uh, Congress produce anything, I think it might be related to border enforcement um, and, and, and border control. And finally, how do you think the 2024 presidential nominating contest will uh, affect the House and affect the Senate and, and congressional uh, responsiveness more generally? I'm happy to have Michael take that one. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I really don't. Are you talking about in terms of like the, um, this competition of where it should be. Um, no, no, sorry. That just, you know, we're gearing up for another presidential election. How is that going to affect Congress? Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think it's going to, and, and I was saying this, the, the margins, I mean, Democrats had 222 um, in the House um, when they were, so it's a slim majority too. I, I, really, I really think that, um, that the higher turnout will, in a presidential election, will benefit Democrats uh, actually more. I think there's a real chance they could take the House back, but the concern that they could lose the Senate. So I, because I, there's so many more seats in play. So I mean, I, I don't know what this higher turn, it depends on what Biden does. It depends on how much hell the Freedom Caucus member uh, members raised during the time. But I, I think that um, higher turnout definitely bodes well for for, for Democrats. The, the only thing I would add is that sometimes presidential elections like give the opposition party the incentive to show that they can govern and they cooperate, oftentimes in the odd year rather than the actual presidential year. And, and we've seen that periodically, but we also have presidential, presidential election years where the parties say, why compromise? Why take half a loaf? Why don't we hold out and try to get unified party control and get a whole loaf for us? And I don't think we know exactly or are able to predict exactly which version we're going to get, but you can imagine some Republicans, um, especially on the Senate side, wanting to show voters that they can govern. And those are those are terms that McConnell often uses um, when he greenlights going going to the bargaining table. Um, but we'll see. Um, depends, as Michael said, on who's who's running, for sure. Thank you. Uh, 
Now we can, I think. Now you hear me. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you, the three of you. Uh, it's one of the most interesting probing discussions of Congress, lots of new material uh, covered here. Uh, I wanna thank everyone who joined us today as well. Um, before you go, I just wanna quickly share some information about our next event, which is uh, called Obstacles at Every Turn. And it focuses on overcoming barriers to Native American voting. This is part of our Certificate and Election Administration program. And this will be Wednesday, February 8th at 11 a.m. We have several other programs we're working on that may uh, come up before then. Um, also, I want to let you know that a video recording um, and a podcast of this session will be coming up in the next day or two. Um, you can find it by searching on Dialogue Across Difference um, and here are all your favorite places to look. Um, if you want to make sure you don't uh, miss anything, you can subscribe to our podcast and be sure that Finally, I want to just let you know that all our programming is free and open to the public. And we do, as you might expect, welcome contributions to make that possible. You can reach out to us at cspg uh, at umn.edu. Finally, big thanks to Sarah Binder and Michael Minta and our moderator, Catherine Pearson. All of you have a great day. Take care. <laughs>